1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
2: John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: They were the baddest band on the planet. Profane and powerful, Guns N' Roses rescued rock and roll with a unique sound built by life on the edge. Led by mesmerizing frontman Axl Rose, Guns N' Roses could inspire religious devotion, a riot, or both. But from day one, the guns' greatest danger was to themselves. Fueled by nonstop drug abuse and outrageous egos, it took just a few years for the group to turn their guns on each other. This is Guns N' Roses, the story behind the music.
4: It's August 2002. In seven years after the implosion of the world's most dangerous band, the reclusive Axel Rose finally emerges with Guns N' Roses at the MTV Video Music Awards. The band's name was familiar, but the faces were not.
5: A lot of people think it's almost sacrilege, (laughs) you know, to do it that way, but he doesn't give a hot
4: Axel's hired guns bore no resemblance to the rock-and-roll outlaws that had enraged parents and enraptured fans in the 1980s. Their menacing sound fueled by lies of extreme decadence and danger.
5: Me and Duff were drinking at least a half gallon of vodka of Jack Daniels a day, just trying to sort of keep ourselves, you know, like, on, on an even keel.
6: They lived it, and that's why, you know, they were one notch above everybody else. They were the real deal.
4: But guns would ultimately choke on their own excess. Less than a decade after shocking the rock world with their seminal debut, Appetite for Destruction, drugs, booze, and runaway egos tore the band apart.
7: Everything was falling apart. Everything was wrong that was going on there. I mean, it was trouble after trouble after trouble. You know, it didn't stop.
1: You didn't know from one minute if it was gonna end because of a drug overdose because of a riot, because of it just imploding. But at the same time, you didn't know if that same day you were going to see the greatest musical performance of all time.
4: Guns and Roses' rebellious roots were planted on the grimy streets of Hollywood in 1982, with two local misfits named Steven Adler and Saul Hudson, AKA Slash, began amping up their hard rock dreams.
5: Steven started playing drums and I started playing guitar, and uh, we started a band. That's where Guns starts for me.
4: In late 84, the struggling musicians checked out a band called Hollywood Rose at an L.A. gig. The group was fronted by Jeffrey Isabel and Bill Bailey, Indiana Transplants who'd renamed themselves Izzy Stradlin and W. Axel Rose. To Slash and Steven, Axel's hypnotic performance was nothing short of magic.
7: After the show, I introduced Axel to... Slash and who knew that that was like history in the making but that was the first time Slash met Axel.
6: I said to Slash, we get that singer and that guitar player we'll have a kick ass band
4: by March of 85 Steven and Slash had joined forces with Axel Rose and Izzy Stradlin that same month bassist Michael Duff McKagan cemented the lineup they called themselves Guns N' Roses
6: we were a gang that's how we thought ourselves we play rock and roll music to kick your ass.
4: Guns were finally cocked and loaded, and their combustible onstage chemistry quickly offered a dangerous alternative to makeup metal groups like Cinderella and Poison.
6: All these other bands, you know, they had all these band decks and makeup and crap. And we didn't. We just went out there and played rock and roll.
7: They looked like outlaws. That was number one. The music was to me like nothing I had ever heard.
5: We just didn't really give a about anything else going on around us. We just
4: had this edge,
5: sort of unpredictable, scary thing about what it was that we did and that there was no hold barred.
4: And from the beginning, guns' hunger for success was matched only by their appetite for excess.
5: Quite often, it was a 24-hour day party, Tupperware's full of cocaine, literally Tupperware's. Everybody was completely strung out and using ecstasy.
8: Nobody drank as much as Slash, and nobody passed out as much as Slash.
5: We were just following in the footsteps of all the guys that we grew up, you that know, were our heroes growing up. And then we just took it that one step further.
4: Virtually homeless and constantly migrating from one squalid crash pad to another, guns were single-minded in their pursuit of just two things, partying and rock and roll.
5: These guys were living off of biscuits and gravy from Denny's, you know, from friends. There was usually at least a few bodies on the floor that you had to step up when you walked
7: in. There was always a song written on a pizza box and empty liquor bottles everywhere.
5: We were always scrounging to find a place to practice or find a place to crash. And back in those days, the best people to know were strippers because they were the ones that were empathetic, you know, to your needs.
4: Once on stage, the band served up bludgeoning riffs, and Axel supplied the menacing lyrics. The product of an abusive household, Rose was an explosive frontman who used his songs to tackle his demons.
5: As volatile as he is, all the things that you might find complicated or difficult about Axel is what fuels him to be such an amazing performer and such an amazing songwriter.
4: Axel's volatility was both a blessing and a curse. By early 86, Guns N' Roses were the hottest band in L.A. But record labels wouldn't touch it.
5: Nobody wanted to sign us. I mean, even though the people that wanted to sign us, they didn't want to deal with us. Nobody wanted to produce us. Nobody wanted to manage us.
4: Um, And, you know, the club owners were scared of us. Guns N' Roses were a powder keg that could blow at any moment. But in the spring of 86, Geffen Records exec Tom Zutout saw the band at an L.A. club thought their hard rock sound was worth almost any headache.
9: I basically went to David Geffen and I said, I just saw the biggest rock and roll band in the world. They're going to sell more records than any band except for maybe Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones.
4: Guns N' Roses signed a record deal with Geffen, but few believed they were destined to redefine rock and roll or even survive at all. The label was worried that their explosive investment could combust at any moment.
9: Well, I was worried about them surviving, because you can't tell junkies or drug addicts to stop taking drugs. They probably laughed when I said, guys, I mean, be careful, you know? You're gonna be the biggest rock and roll band in the world. You don't need to destroy it with this crap.
7: You always kind of thought that, you know, there would be like the explosion and it would all be over, or one of them would die, or something would happen.
6: Crap. we're the bad boys.
4: In August of 86, Geffen got Guns into the studio. But the band never allowed a rigid recording schedule to cramp their untamed style.
5: On any given night, uh, terrorizing Hollywood, every morning we'd have to get up and somehow manage to be at the studio by 12. They came in
4: many, many times well hungover. But amid all the chaos, Guns N' Roses were about to make musical history. One of the songs that emerged in those early sessions was a disarmingly sensitive ballad called Sweet Child of Mine. Ironically, Slash came up with its classic opening riff as a joke.
6: We were rehearsing, got we guitars, and then he started playing like a circus kind of thing. You know? And I was like, dude, play that again.
5: What started out as a, a joke guitar riff for me turned into a huge anthem for Axel as far as... Uh, that relationship that he was in at the time. So it was a very heartfelt moment in his life.
4: Axel's unusually affectionate lyrics were penned as a love letter to his girlfriend, Erin Everly, with whom he had had a tumultuous five-year relationship.
3: When it was good, it was good. And when it was bad, it was horrible. There was a lot
5: of turmoil between those two. And that's all I want to say.
7: Erin was a very nice girl. She was cute as could be. She was just the opposite as Axel, But it also shows a side of Axel, Sweet Child of mine, that you wouldn't necessarily when you hear all these nasty things about him.
4: But Sweet Child was a rare track of tenderness on an album dominated by incendiary anthems like Welcome to the Jungle. And when Appetite for Destruction was released in July of 87, it bombarded fans with a brutal sonic diary of five musicians hanging on the edge by a thread.
6: They were, you know, they were living, you know, hand-to-mouth. And they were just all about the rock and the girls and the drinks. And that's what they sang about. That's what they did. And they lived it.
5: It's a a, pretty much a storybook of everything that Axel and the band was going through from, say, the beginning of the 80s all the way up until the record was finished.
4: In August of 87, Guns hit the road for a world tour to support the album, taking their never-ending Hollywood party to inebriated extremes around the globe.
5: There's just a bunch of crazy kids that have just been given the key to every city in the the world, (laughs) basically.
7: There were photo sessions when Slash literally was propped up, you know, the head up and somebody behind him to hold him up so he wouldn't fall down for the photo session.
1: Slash is a very dedicated player. He would go and throw up behind the amps, come back out, keep playing, smoke on stage,
5: and a cigarette would drop down in between his pants and his stomach. And I'm sitting there watching him going, you know, dude, you're burning up. And he's just doing this solo in
4: pain. The Guns' outrageous antics and graphic lyrics were infuriating parents, but delighting fans. And in July of 88, Appetite for Destruction climbed to number one on the charts.
5: It was the, the right band at the right time, with the right message, and it just happened to, to, to hit the youths of America in a certain way that everybody related to it, which is f- great.
4: But just as the band reached multi-platinum heights, tragedy brought them crashing back to earth. On August 20th, 1988, during the Guns set at the Monsters of Rock Festival in Donington, England, two fans were crushed and killed by the frenzied audience.
5: And so we finished the gig, our manager didn't tell us about it, so we met up at a pub later on and I found him in the bar sort of crying and he told me about that. And it's like, that was when the reality kicked in that you can get to this all-time high, something that you can't compare to anything and then have it go to an all-time low.
4: The deaths at Donington added fuel to a growing critical fire against the band and to the sentiment that GNR were headed for premature destruction. Next, the guns turn on Steven Adler, when Behind the Music continues.
0: In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop, like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting
3: bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version.
0: This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And The law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars.
2: We never knew we had the same cop in the case. It's Garcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f***
0: themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.
4: By the end of 1988, Guns N' Roses had launched a multi-platinum blast of dirt and grime onto the airbrushed face of rock and roll. Just one year after the release of their debut album, they were one of the most popular bands in the world.
5: They were the baddest thing on the block at the time.
0: They had a certain genuineness to them that I think people really attached themselves to.
5: They were what they were, and what you saw is what you got. I had no expectations for it to be such a global event.
4: (laughs) In November of '88, Guns released the EP GNR Lives, a collection that included four new tracks knocked out in a single inspired studio session. Driven by the top 10 ballad patience, the record would go on to sell two million copies.
5: Basically, it was a live session. I recorded everybody in the same room and in a circle and they all played together and it was pretty magical. We did Lives Record and it was like a real easy, quick thing to do, which was really successful, which was sort of a shock. One day's work and sells so like all these copies.
4: Despite their success, controversy constantly threatened to disarm the young guns. Another of the tracks on GNR Lives was One in a Million. A divisive tune with racially charged lyrics that put the band under fire
5: it hit home with me on a bad level because I'm half black, for one. So you start saying the word man, it's very unsettling.
4: But the storm of protest only fueled album sales. And in February of '89, as GNR lies joined Appetite for Destruction in the top five, the band decided to take a break from recording and the road. But their downtime quickly became an endless succession of wanton days and wasted nights.
5: That's where we really went downhill. That's that's where I got lost, Izzy got lost, Steven got lost, Duff even got lost, and Axel disappeared somewhere.
7: Slash didn't know how to entertain himself unless he was on stage or going to a gig or doing something. You know, so what did he do? Wake up, drink, and drink more?
1: I love Slash to death, but his drug abuse was out of control. Steven's drug abuse was out of control. You know, Duff's drinking um, and Axel's, you know, wild-eyed vision of reality was, was out of control.
4: In October of 89, Guns got an offer to open four shows for the Rolling Stones in L.A. It seemed the perfect opportunity to bring the band back together. But on opening night, Axel made a shocking announcement on stage.
9: He implied if certain members don't stop dancing with Mr. Brownstone, meaning Slash and, and drugs, you know, the band was over.
8: Well, they all were messing around there, but somebody had a real big problem, and if they didn't stop doing it, that was the end of Guns N' Roses.
5: I know it was directed at me because I was all strung out at the time. That was one of the things that probably made me hate Axel more than anything. Something I probably never, ever forgave him for without really even thinking about it.
4: At the time, the tirade seemed to galvanize the band. In the spring of 90, Guns entered the studio to begin work on their most elaborate project yet, a double album of all new material.
5: We all managed to sort of straighten ourselves out, with the exception of Steven. Steven was so locked up that he just couldn't get it
1: together. He was so messed up with junk that he couldn't pull off the tracks.
4: The band had lofty ambitions for the new album, but Adler's debilitating heroin addiction made him a liability in the studio. And the sessions came to a grinding halt. He couldn't play. He would
5: lie to us. And we'd go over to his place and find behind the toilet and find stuff underneath the scene. In
4: July of 1990, frustrated by their lack of progress, the band fired Steven Adler, only worsening the drummer's depression and drug abuse. He would eventually suffer a cocaine-induced stroke.
6: I did everything I possibly could to try and kill myself. I had nothing left for I mean, everybody that I knew, I thought were my friends, took everything they could from me and disappeared. I would drink a whole bottle of vodka just down at my... Before the sun was coming up, so I could pass out.
4: As Stevens spun into a deadly narcotic abyss, the band recruited former Cult drummer Matt Sorum, and in September of '90, Guns began laying down the tracks that would make up the epic double album *Use Your Illusion* One and Two.
9: His creative idea of moving forward was: we can't remake *Appetite*. The next record has to be in another direction.
4: But the impoverished gang of five who'd lived through the turmoil that inspired Appetite for Destruction had drifted apart. And from the start, Sessions were literally phoned in.
5: It was impossible to get us into one room, all of us, at one time.
8: It was very dark, and there was a lot of just toxic sort of a feeling in the room. And sightings of Axel Rose were few and far in between. User
5: Illusions was all over the place. It was sort of like the, you know, the Guns N' Roses version of the White Album, so to speak. Maybe not quite as good. It was like all this material coming from all different directions.
4: Despite all the turmoil, Guns' double album was destined to become a phenomenal success. Few could have guessed that it would also serve as the band's last artistic gasp. By early 1991, Guns N' Roses were both finishing up their ambitious double album and plotting a massive world tour. But as they hit the road, concert crowds discovered that the look of the band had drastically changed.
5: We had a horn section and pianos and all this other kind of crap, which we didn't necessarily want as a band, but it was something that Axel still wanted.
8: I remember it feeling a bit like, I didn't really sign up for this. I was kind of hoping to join a badass rock and roll
4: band. <laughs> you know, what's with the piano?
8: Just, it just got bloated,
4: just plain and simple. Always the Dominic guns man, Axel Rose now seemed hell bent on seizing control of the band. Soon after the tour began, he gave Slash, Izzy and Duff an ultimatum, sign over the rights to the name Guns N' Roses, or the group would be history.
9: In his mind, the name belonged to him. And if something disintegrated, you know, he wanted to ensure Guns N' Roses' ultimate survival, even if this version of the band broke up.
5: If we didn't sign it, the band was going to break up right then and there. So we just did what we've always done and just kept the thing going.
4: But as tensions mounted within the group, the strain began to show on stage. In July of 91, a concert in St. Louis spun out of control, after Axel dove into the crowd and tried to grab a camera from an overeager fan.
5: I jumped off stage, and yeah, things went haywire after that. And I maybe I could have handled it better or whatever, but no one was really handling anything at that point. So I took it into my own hands with what I could do.
4: Within minutes, tens of thousands of people were enveloped in chaos. The whole place just f-
5: collectively destroyed everything. It was one of the scariest things I've ever seen. We were in the dressing room and I remember opening the door it'd be like people on stretchers and they were all bloody and it was like gnarly. i
1: told tell the driver just to get the quickest way out to the state line and get us out. And we drove, you know, here's the biggest band in the world laying down in the back of the van to escape arrest to get and drive to Chicago. It was, it was insane.
4: As the tour rolled on, fans could never be sure what they would get from the guns. Sometimes Axel walked off stage, or he didn't show up at all. But at other gigs, he delivered mesmerizing performances that all but overpowered the crowd.
0: He had that, that way of, of talking to the audience and,
5: and, and speaking his mind that they could relate to, but he also had this swagger like a lizard. You
7: know, and the girls loved that. I cannot recall one show I've seen that she didn't give me goosebumps.
8: He was like the greatest rock and roll front man ever.
4: Guns concerts had become larger than life spectacles, but even that could not prepare them for the hysteria that greeted the release of their long-awaited double album. There has
1: been nothing like the anticipation of user Illusions ever. They, they sound-scanned a 1,600,000 records the first week and was just this juggernaut that had not been seen since The Beatles, really.
4: Released in September 91, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 was an imperfect masterpiece, running the gamut from grandly epic ballads to down and dirty rock.
2: It just had a lot of everything, and it was the good, the bad, and the ugly of Guns N' Roses.
5: This was when we were going to pull all the stops, everything we could think of to do, that we wanted to do what we were going to do.
4: Guns were both more popular and more divided than ever. As the group began shooting videos for the new album, Axel outlined elaborate, big-budget visions with minimal input from the rest of the band. Everything had to be
7: bigger and better and more grander and more majestic and more money, and he had to splash it, and that he did. For me, the
8: biggest change in Guns N' Roses, I think, was the video when Axel decided that they needed an aircraft carrier and he's gonna jump over an aircraft carrier and swim with dolphins. Okay, <laughs> that was the part that I said, you know what, that's not so street. And that's where
5: we just sort of completely separated. This group of guys is here and this other guy's on this page.
4: By November of 91, Izzy Stradlin had had enough of Axel's iron fist. Just as Guns was amping up for another tour, the newly sober guitarist abruptly quit the group.
1: Izzy felt dictated to and quit, Yeah. Everybody wished they could go with him, but then you have, you're have balancing, you know, your, your, your livelihood with, do I put up with this crap?
4: Just weeks before Guns was to hit the road in December 91, L.A. guitarist Gilby Clark stepped into Izzy's shoes. He knew he wouldn't be filling them for long it's just, you know, here.
2: Learn the songs, play the songs, here's
6: your paycheck. I knew from day one that it could end tomorrow, you know?
4: The guns got on the road, but from the beginning, the band had little contact with Axl off offstage, and even less of a clue when he might turn up for gigs.
5: It was hard, you know, so we had a lot of canceled gigs, we had a lot of gigs where he almost didn't play, we had a lot of, like, walking off the stage and all of set and having him, it was all very trying.
8: I would be like, come on, you guys. I mean, we got to deal with this. Let's be a band. And every time I'd go out to deal with Axel, I'd turn around and they'd all gone the other way. Like, dude, you said you were backing me up. We would go down to the show, and, you
5: know, you know, you have a cocktail at the show, you have another cocktail. And by the time he'd show up, we
3: were
1: hammered, you know, from sitting and drinking so much.
4: And soon the heavy drinking and drug abuse began taking a physical toll on the band.
1: I got a phone call at 5.30, 6 a.m. at my room from the front desk saying, Mr. Reese, one of your uh, band members is passed out in front of the elevator on the sixth or fifth floor. So I throw on some pads, jump, run out my room, and Slash is dead. I mean, dead, blue dead, but he had no pulse. Paramedics show up, bam, the adrenaline right into his heart.
4: Slash had dodged a bullet, but Duff was killing himself slowly with booze. Duff was in terrible shape, terrible shape. He could barely speak.
8: I'd be on stage and I'd hear, uh, when I look over and Duff would be laid out, his bass guitar on the stage and him passed out.
4: In the summer of 92, despite the offstage fireworks, Guns N' Roses joined Metallica for a stadium concert tour. But on August 8th at a gig in Montreal, Metallica frontman James Hetfield was severely burned in a bizarre pyrotechnic accident, leaving the guns to deal with an incendiary crowd.
1: So could have probably saved the day but his voice was messed up.
6: He just couldn't hear himself and uh, chose to
1: leave. I went out to the stage and you know they're shredding the place there. you know I saw bonfires and this is an enclosed stadium. And they just
5: looted everything. There were cop cars overturned. And I mean, I've never seen anything like that. You know, that
4: was my first riot.
5: That was a really sort of embarrassing moment for everybody. It was like, we have no control over this. You know?
4: The guns soldiered on until July of 93. Their final performance was for 70,000 fans in Buenos Aires, Argentina. It was the last the world would see of the original band. Next, the guns come undone. When behind the music continues.
0: In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like detective Louis Scarcella.
3: Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice.
1: That's
0: one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And The law was my girlfriend.
2: This is my only way to freedom.
0: Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars.
2: We never knew we had the same cop in the case. It's Garcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They
0: can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.
4: On July 17, 1993, Guns N' Roses completed a a two-and-a-half-year tour that was the longest in rock history. But as the band touched down in Los Angeles, their future was more uncertain than ever.
1: Even though the family was dysfunctional, they were still a family on the road. Nobody wanted to
5: come home. You know, nobody really wanted to end because I think everybody in the back of their mind thought that it was going to be over
4: in november of 93 guns released a collection of cover tunes called the spaghetti incident but as they began working on a new album of original material in early 94 axel's dominating demeanor was stifling the rest of the band
8: it's not f-ing brain surgery i mean i've f-ing said it a million times dude what are you doing over there Who are you zooming made I'm doing a 72 piece f-ing, you know orchestral masterpiece
4: in December of 94, GNR managed to cobble together a cover of the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil for a movie soundtrack. It would prove a sonic farewell for Matt, Slash, Duff, and Axel.
5: That's the sound of the band breaking up right there.
9: <laughs> slash and Duff and, and them had much less patience for eating the amount of they had to eat to keep everything going. A
1: band is a marriage, and they were bound for divorce court.
9: In
4: October of 96, Slash finally quit the guns and Matt Sorum and Duff McKagan soon followed suit. In the aftermath, Axel virtually disappeared for half a decade, attempting to reinvent Guns N' Roses with a brand new cast. This is taking a long time. Yeah, but it's also also how do you rebuild something that got so big and replace virtually every person on the crew, every single thing. Axel took his new guns on the road in 2002. But the North American tour was fraught with cancellations and unraveled after only 15 shows.
2: I think the guy has really fought hard to make Guns N' Roses relevant to whatever was going on. But he's waited so long, whatever was going on has changed a few times. I think he just, in his head, wants to achieve a sort of mythic perfection that may be impossible.
3: Axel's long-awaited Chinese Democracy album was finally released in 2008 after more than a decade of anticipation. As for Slash, Duff, and Matt Sorum, they formed the supergroup Velvet Revolver with former Stone Temple Pilots frontman Scott Weiland. In June of 2004, they released their debut album Contraband, touted by critics as a scathing blast of righteous rock.
8: I'm out on the road enjoying on stage got some greatest musicians around me and that's the most important thing
5: i've been in enough bands and done enough sessions and played enough gigs after all these years now i do understand what it is and finally have that come around a second time is real blessing
3: despite these separate projects the public's hunger for the original guns remained insatiable Finally, in 2016, it was announced that Slash and Duff would rejoin the band as the headliners at Coachella. Since then, they have continued touring and are even planning an upcoming seventh album release. But whatever the future holds, the band's legacy will live on. For more than three decades, these Rock and Roll Hall of Famers pillaged the music world and remade rock and roll in their own decadent
8: image. Listen to Behind the Music on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Want more episodes? You can watch Remastered, Best of the Vault, and new episodes of Behind the Music only on Paramount+.
2: Jon Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app